Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I had a talk with Yami Lias, co-founder and CEO of Future Play Games. Yami is a long-time game industry veteran whose career spans from working at Digital Chocolate, EA, Rovio, and now at his own company. Yami and his team have been exploring better ways of working on games, and today he will share these learnings with us. So Yami, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. It's really great to have a chat with you and talk about future play. So uh, let's start off with uh, your own background and how you got in the game industry and eventually to found future play games. How, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in a short form, I started in uh, mobile games and games overall, working uh, 2000, uh, September 2000 for a company called Riot Entertainment here in Helsinki, the kind of boom-bust story of the early mobile gaming days, the WAP games, etc. cetera. Uh, so I was a game designer there, freelancing for them, did a couple of Marvel games and Spider-Man games, X-Men games, uh, and stuff like that. But then I actually uh, went and did other things, worked in television, magazines at Microbit, a local uh, gaming and computer hobbyist magazine, and worked on television, uh, concepting and, and writing stories and stuff like that for a few years. In 2004, I joined Sumia Interactive and we got acquired by Little Chocolate. And that's when I fully kind of full time entered the mobile games industry in 2004. But um, that's that's kind of background in the, in the games, how, how I ended up in games. And after that 2004 producer stint where I started off as, as a Sumia, uh, I never wanted to move to another industry. So I've just been changing companies and kind of growing together with the industry and finding my own path and finding where I want to be. And after kind of being almost eight years at Digital Chocolate from 2004 to 2011, I did a lateral move and moved to Playfish Electronic Arts to London to kind of manage their global studios, starting from Tokyo to San Francisco, seven studios in between. And the kind of remit there was to kind of basically take them from Facebook canvas games back to mobile because mobile started to raise its head in a bigger way with the introduction of iPhone and app store. And then, and then also at that time already kind of in application purchases in 2010, 2011, etc. So that was like a change management job, but it was a, a little bit futile effort and family wanted to move back. So I moved back into, into Finland to, to do the same thing, a change management gig at Rovio then for a couple of years from 2000, like, uh, 13 to 2015. And there the change was to take them from paid download games into free to play games. And lo and behold, uh, change management is a futile effort there as well. You know, it was a difficult thing. Uh, so, after those four years in the games industry, trying to work for others, for bigger companies, bigger corporations, whether multinational companies like Electronic Arts or global family companies like Rovio, and, and trying to take them to a new place, a new platform, a new business model uh, with the experience that I had from that business model or that platform, 
uh, I felt like I have to do my own thing. I have to start my own company. Life's too short for that. I can't deal with this anymore, that I've been hired to do something and then I'm not allowed to do my job, basically. So that's very futile. So that's how we got into Future Play in, in talking about in at the end of 2014 and founded it in 2015. But uh, we can go into more details about that later. Yeah, before talking about Future Play, uh, can you tell me, was becoming an entrepreneur something that you always wanted to do in your career? It's been something that I've kind of always thought that I will do at some point. My dad was a florist. My grandma was a grocer. They had their own companies for their whole lives, etc. And I almost started companies a couple of times earlier in different industries. We we're thinking about starting a, uh, like an interactive digital advertising company with a classmate of mine uh, at uh, the HUT, Helsinki University of Technology in like 2003 or 2002, when the kind of Java-based multimedia home platform with interactivity was for the set-top boxes here for digital television. And we were already kind of doing pitches and stuff like that, putting stuff together. But then we went our different ways and both are doing fine. Uh, the other guys now at Vario and, and I have Future Play. So we're, we're, we're happy where we are. Uh, but at that point, we were already thinking about it when we were in university. And I almost went and founded a company before I joined Rovio as well. But at that time, the team that I was talking about it with, as my co-founders, One of them was in Germany, one of them was in the UK, and none of our schedules and family schedules and relocation schedules could be met in a way. So we thought, that let's pass on it now. Let's see in a few years or a year or when one of us starts to feel the itch again that, hey, I'm, I've, I've had enough of this. Let's, let's do it now. But then, you know, uh, when we started talking about future play, those guys were doing other things already, et cetera. So they're not uh, the same people that uh, ended up co-founding with me. But yeah, it's been at the back of my mind um, most of the times that I don't see any reason why I wouldn't found a company if I can get the right things to meet at the right time. You know, if I have the people and the funding, and we can talk more about that later. But it's never been like a daunting idea it's been more of a very interesting and very in inviting and entertaining idea rather than something that scares me so in 2015 you had the team then that you started the company and that's like four years ago now where's the company where's future play now in its yeah, time we started with five people um five co-founders and um We are now 34, I think. I haven't checked today. Uh, what's um, I think we're 34 people. Uh, we're in a good place. I mean, four years. Uh, what kind of numbers will be relevant? We're four years old uh, in, in April uh, this year. Uh, we're 34 people currently. Last year, we were a little bit over 10 million euros in revenue. This year, it looks to be 20 or 30 or who knows, depending on how the games do. But another, like... Uh, Another good year for us. Last year, we more than tripled our revenue, almost quadrupled from 17 to 18. And this year, we're going to double or triple from 18 to 19 uh, years. Um, uh, revenues and we're profitable, we're growing, we're still doing the things the way we want. So we're still having the no bullshit culture and, and you know, doing exactly not just what we're working on, but how we're working on and all of that is still the, uh, exactly the way we want and, and having lots of fun and just riffing off each other and, and figuring out things um, as we go and all of that. So nothing's changed except numbers are getting bigger, stakes are getting bigger. And you know now the fun is really starting in a way. 
Before we go into the team and uh, culture in the company and everything, let's talk about the, the CEO, which is you. Uh, yeah. h- how have you educated yourself in becoming a CEO? Do you have like mentors? Do you read a lot of books? What's the, the model there? I, I read less nowadays than I used to. Uh, funnily enough, I mean, after becoming a CEO, I've been reading less and less and, and just, you know, talking more with just the team and, and, and talking with other people. I wouldn't say that I have like mentors or anything, but uh, uh, there are very, very kind of good CEOs in, in our industry locally here in Finland who are good friends of mine and people who I worked with before, starting from Ilka from Supercell. We worked almost eight years together at Digital Chocolate and I you know, worked directly for him most of that time before he left. And then I did his job as well and, and all of that. But um, following him closely, following the other CEOs closely and also learning from, you know, the other companies where I worked in at the EA, at Playfish, Christian Segas Trolland and John Rictello at EA and, and also Mikael Head at Rovio. Uh, maybe different learnings there uh, than from from Ilka, for example, different personalities and all of that. But I think I've learned from all the CEOs uh, in the companies I, I've worked in, in different ways. Sometimes you learn like, okay, that's not the way I want to do it, or that's exactly the way I want to do it. Or at least you learn that uh, more kind of general skills, like just being yourself and not trying to learn, you know, skills that are uh, something that uh, that you would need to learn like a process or anything, but just the way you are, etc., and how you approach people and how you approach yourself as a CEO, your personality and your kind of, um, well, you don't want to change your personality, but what, I'm, what I mean by that is that, you know, just kind of trusting yourself and, and the way you portray that or, or the way you show different things like emotions or vulnerability and stuff like that. And, I think that's something that you can really learn from books. You have to see it in action. You have to see people who are kind of talking the talk and walking the walk and then seeing how well that works and how people react to that, you know, people working for that CEO. So I think that that's been most beneficial, at least for me, to be working very closely, usually directly for the CEO of another company and then learning um, in the kind of wake of those people really that, okay, if I want to do this, this is the way I want to do it too, or this is the way that I want to do it instead, right? When you watch them closely. But there are lots of good books that can be at least inspirational. I wouldn't say that it's super easy to, you know, read a book about how to be a CEO and then you change everything the way who you are and how you are and what you do and why you do it. That's not going to work. You, you've got to be yourself first and foremost. Nothing else is going to fly for very long if you just read it from a book. So I think books are very good for more general things, business and, and organization and process and strategy and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, legal things and marketing. And, and there's lots of good books on a lot of different topics, but it's very hard to read it from a book that how to be a good CEO, for example. I think it's something that you just have to learn by doing and make, make mistakes and make sure that you kind of build a team and build a runway and build a funding and build a structure around the company and under the company that allows you to grow into being that CEO you want to be. I don't know if that all makes sense. Yeah, that's really good advice for a new CEO for sure. Like, if if you think about the 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 way that you've approached uh, 
building future play and when you've seen the the big companies like Rovio and EA operate what do you think is really the difference between running a, a smaller medium-sized or big company well the biggest difference obviously is the size and what comes along with it and I'm trying to be you know funny or anything is that everything is different because everything is more more kind of close combat close proximity hand-to-hand and and uh, that's what the kind of smaller scale and proximity brings but you really have to understand that when you are building things that if you are in close proximity and hand-to-hand it means that people really need to be hands-on and it means that people really need to be comfortable in playing being more close to each other working more closely being able to kind of transfer between roles or between areas or overlap in different areas in a different way it's literally and metaphorically that you are in a smaller office you are in a tighter space not just you know literally but also kind of creatively and technically and everything so i think that's something that uh, a lot of people maybe miss out on on things when they're starting up for example is that they take you know specific roles like from bigger companies and they think that if they put one two three four five people together that that's going to work if you cherry pick you know just five specific roles from a bigger organization bigger company i think that's enough you need a lot more than that even if you're small but you need those people who can do 10 different jobs in your team that's the only way how you're going to be able to have a really good chance of being successful that yeah you only have five people but those people can actually do the work for 50 people doesn't mean that they're going to work as much as 50 people are but you know what i mean that somebody needs to do something in marketing they're a coder but they can do it somebody needs to do something in user acquisition they're an artist but they can do it and that's how you can get along a lot longer and a lot faster with a lot smaller team and a lot less funding and a lot more agility and speed as, a, as an early company. If you have those kinds of people who are very vers- versatile, very experienced, uh, and uh, just very kind of hands-on on doing things, because um, I'm talking a very long kind of stretches here, but I want to finish this thought, is that what we've kind of focused on on all the time is action before talk. I mean, we discuss about a lot of things, but we value the most things that are actually done, then it's of no value if we keep talking about it. It's of no value if it's an idea. It's of no value if it's a plan. If it's of no value, if it's uh, in the backlog. If it's not in the build, it's not in the build. If it's not out there in the market, it's not out there in the market. And as a small company, you don't have the luxury, especially when you're starting up, of having previous portfolio or previous products or existing revenue or anything. And that's why in the early days, speed is of the essence and when you're small all you have is your speed and agility and you don't have the inertia or the scale or the mass of bigger companies so i think that you really need to try to use that to your advantage i don't know if we want to go all martial arts metaphors here or anything (laughs) but um it's quite simple in a way if you really kind of understand the dynamics uh uh, Mm -hmm. really well just, yeah, you know, find the tools, the people that really fit that and, and, and nothing extra because the extra is just going to slow you down. Yeah, totally agree with all what you said. Uh, thinking about building the teams inside your company, like uh, you mentioned that you have this kind of like no bullshit, zero hierarchy. Uh, can you explain how that works when you're growing the company and you're building the teams where you need to have somebody 
who takes the lead and the others are following the lead? Like, how, why, do, you, why? how do you structure that? Why do you need somebody to take the lead? Do, we don't have team leads. Do, you don't have them? No, okay. we don't have team leads. How, how, do, how do the teams operate? Uh, they, they just operate. <laughs> so, <laughs> let, let me kind of go back a little bit. I mean, the way we started Future Play was that let's start this company and let's start it from scratch. And because it's our company, you know, let's, we, we don't want any bullshit. We don't want to tolerate any of the bullshit that we had in previous corporations or ever in our careers in different situations that now that we get a clean slate, the fresh start, let's do it our way and let's make it into our own image and let's not do anything. Let's not adopt any processes or make any decisions or build any structures or um, make any, any uh, creative or technological decisions or, you know, let's not do anything unless we really need to or we have to or it's needed by law or it's useful or fun or profitable or makes sense. Then let's figure out, okay, what do we do regarding titles? What do we do regarding business cards? What do we do regarding multiplayer technology? What do we do regarding analytics? What do we do regarding user acquisition? What do we do regarding... As soon as everything comes our way as a question that, okay, can we do this ourselves? No. Okay, I've done this. Let's try ourselves. Whether it's a hire or a, do we need to buy services or hire somebody or build something or make a decision or go somewhere. Bit by bit, we started to kind of figure out more and more things that, okay, maybe we need to hire somebody for this and um, maybe we need to... Um, have a decision how we approach this thing going forward when it comes along our way the next time, whether you call it a policy or not, or whether it's just part of our culture that how do we approach things, etc. It's all uh, all kind of case by case, but we really started with that, that. Okay, no bullshit. Let's not do anything we don't want or what doesn't make sense or isn't fun or good for the company. And no bullshit for us means really like a punk version of the golden rule. Do unto others the way you want yourself to be treated. And which is not JC, by the way, 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ, it's actually Confucius, a couple thousand years before that. And the thinking was that we don't want to do bad things, but we don't want to be a pushover either. So, you know, it's more punk in that sense that we don't tolerate any bullshit. If somebody's trying to fool us or, you know... Uh, scam us or whatever we're not going to tolerate that but at the same time we need to tolerate other people and treat everybody with respect and be good good to other folks to our players to our customers to our partners etc and we don't want to be the bad guys ever either so that's where the no bullshit kind of started from and you know the way we're organized now with those 34 people is that we were two product teams uh, the other team we call the idle team is working on our previous four first launches, all, all games in the idle series. There's nine people there and um, they don't have a team lead. They don't have a product lead or a product owner. Uh, they self-organize. Uh, they work mostly with Notion and Google Sheets and uh, they have some Kanban boards and, and they do daily, daily meetings and weekly meetings. It's more like a, a scrum kind of process than what they have. And they have different kind of level of, of different kinds of backlogs where they look at it on a, on a daily, weekly or monthly or kind of quarterly basis on bigger features, focus on which products out of the four, what kind of content they're building, seasonal things and stuff like that. And they self-organize around that based on how the, how the products are doing. And there's designers, artists, programmers uh, in that team. And then 
kind of half, halfway there, marketing artists, user acquisition, uh, data analysts, et cetera, people who are in a more of a central team, but they kind of work so closely with them that sometimes it's kind of irrelevant to think if they're in another uh, central team or part of that team. We haven't officially moved those people into the product teams. They are still kind of sitting together in a central team. Then we have another product team, uh, which is working on Battlelands Royale. That's 10 people artists, designer, one designer, and, and coders, uh, mostly artists. Um, and and uh, they have a community person as well that's more there, actually focused on Battlelands, working with Discord, working with um, uh, Facebook, working with uh, all, all the kind of platforms where we have a community. And they're self-organized as well. They don't have a team lead. They don't have a product owner. They don't have a... We have no producers, no managers, no product managers, no directors, no line managers, no, no C-level roles other than uh, the CEO or anything like that. The teams are fully self-organized and fully responsible and have 100% ownership of their P&L and their roadmap and everything that they do. And um, yeah, now that we're 34, we've started to have these discussions that we're working on some new stuff now as well. And we're going to be breaking off into three, three or four, even five teams at the latest next year. Uh, maybe some of those teams already get formed this year. And we are having these discussions that, okay, how, how are we going to do the splinter selling into these new teams? That who's going to go there and which games we're going to start working on? Because it's very organic for us. And I know we're going into some of the other territory you have there. So we can save that for, for that. But the, the point is that, you know, it's just kind of, the way we approach things is very organic for a reason. There is a reason why life is very persistent. And there's a reason why, you know, nature can adapt to anything, etc. And there's a reason why, you know, supercell, it's called supercell and they have cells, etc. and all of that. You can put together even a large organism from 25 billion individual cells that are actually fully capable of living inside that organism and take care of themselves, but they also need others, etc. There's a reason why structures like that work. Um, but if you take all those different cells and take them out of there and put them on the table, they will die pretty, pretty soon. But inside that organism, they're fully capable of living and all that. Now we're maybe going into different areas, so I'm, uh, I'm going to let you uh directed yeah. better back in where we need to be able to no, let's go deeper <laughs> i, I want to like hear more about kind of like how you approach like these kind of people things and hr and career development of people like is there a term like career with people at future play like in a sense that you're you're seeing kind of like your career moving somewhere where how, how do you guys approach those aspects? Well, the short answer is just that we don't know yet. I mean, the jury is still out. It is something that, you know, we're, we're discussing a lot. I mean, kind of going back a little, little further and thinking about it on a, on a higher level, that if you, if you kind of have a structure, an organization that has a structure, you have different la layers and hierarchy, et cetera. And if you think about it, that's a three-dimensional model. And if you remove the structure and you flatten it, that's what a flat hierarchy is you lose certain things. You lose things like chain of command and command and control. Somebody tells somebody what to do and they're going to follow up and give them feedback and, and how well they're doing and give them the next task, etc. And And you lose some of that. So we have noticed, you know, and, and learned 
by growing and learned by doing in the past four years that shit, we, we get a lot from the freedom and from the kind of structure where we are, where basically you can do anything as long as it makes sense and, and it's good for the company and it's no bullshit and it's not illegal or anything. We don't have any budgets or policies or any rules or anything. You can spend as much money on anything as as you want, whether it's marketing or something else, as long as that makes sense. Obviously, people don't do anything crazy because then we would have a very strict and hard conversation very quickly about it. That why would you why would you spend a hundred thousand on chocolate? That's just fucking stupid, right? Mm-hmm. So stuff like that doesn't happen because people are usually smart when you trust them, and people want want a good thing for the company if they join it for the right reasons. So we don't need those, but. The conversations we've had a lot is that how do we give feedback when there isn't this kind of command and control and nobody's anybody's superior? It needs to be peer feedback. And it's one of those things that when it's everybody's responsibility to be active and open and communicating about feedback to others, hey, you did really well there. And hey, by the way, maybe next time when we do this, you could work in this way and that will be better. That doesn't always happen. And we've noticed that, you know, even though the opportunity is there for anyone to give at any time anyone feedback about anything, usually what happens is that nobody tells anybody uh, nobody nothing, right? So it's this fallacy of uh, anything goes, but then nothing happens, right? Uh, so that's something that we're trying to trying to kind of fix in a couple of different ways and trying to keep it within the team. So we're just trying to use what we already do, like retrospectives as a forum, as a springboard for going deeper into proper feedback territory and and people trusting each other enough to actually be giving valuable insight. And there's also a lot of research about feedback. I don't know if you read uh, Harvard Business Review, that feedback fallacy uh, article, that feedback is dead, that you can't really fix the things in people that don't work. You can only improve and amplify the things that work already. So... We, we've adopted a few few things where we just try to kind of po- focus on the best self-review and stuff like that, where people give high fives and, and try to kind of come up with these cultural things that would amplify this positive feedback giving to others and also people to kind of give positive feedback to themselves, set their goals, give them a little bit of a framework with a... With a uh, kind of platform or service called uh, 155, uh, which is the best self-review, high-fiving platform, et cetera, stuff like that. The very lightweight HR solution, in, in a, if you will. In a way, so we're trying to fix that in that way. But back to the kind of career development. Career development is hard because we don't have like a junior programmer, programmer, programmer number one, programmer number two, senior programmer one, senior programmer two, veteran programmer number one, et cetera, like at EA. And suddenly you have 27 levels of programmers and you call that career development. Is that really career development? That's salary development that people are mostly after or responsibility development, right? That's what people are really after is their kind of compensation development and, and career development in, in a, what the career is, what they get to work on and what kind of things and skills they get to learn etc rather than the titles right so we don't have the titles but we're trying to have these conversations in the one-on-ones and trying to have these conversations in larger groups as well that what is it that you want to be working on and and trying to kind of get people to realize themselves what they want to do what what kind of games they would want to build what technologies or tools or skills they would want to learn 
and how could they best learn them on the job? Do they need any training or education on that or learning from others, etc.? So there are other ways that we're trying to tackle that, but uh, we actually have now in a, in a two weeks time an employee experience person starting, uh, which is kind of the closest to HR that we will ever going to get. And, and the thinking there is that uh, now that we have somebody who takes care of the office, we have and the physical space and events and everything, that everything works. We have somebody who takes care of the finances, you know, how the money uh, kind of money flows are going and what is our forecasting looking like and I try to take care of everything else and look outside and upwards into the board and everything. We want somebody who comes in and and tries to really get to know our company and know our people in terms of feedback, in terms of career development, in terms of the personal uh, well-being in the headspace environment, so not physical environment. So we're trying to focus on that. Somebody who comes comes in and, and we're, we don't have a template or a mandate on how to build career development, how to build feedback. But now that we're 34, I've seen it before, when you get to like 50 or 70, you get somebody in HR, et cetera. We don't call it HR and we don't want to call it HR because there is no HR and nothing but HR in smaller companies. Every action is HR in a company like ours. Um, and by HR, I mean like strategic HR, not like, you know, hiring and firing only, but everything that you do kind of builds the act, the ways of, and behaviors of the company and the culture in it. So it is something that we're trying to figure out what is the right way to do in, in a way that it, we don't start to kind of direct it too much. Just like something that is organic and grows, if you put a fence around it, it will, you know, the fence will be there, it will just break through it and start growing somewhere else, etc. So we don't want to build cages around us and two rigid frameworks or anything in terms of this is how we're going to do creative development. We just try to have like a it's more like raising raising a kid. You can't tell them this is who you got to be and this is what you have to do to who you want to be, but you try to be there. You just try to be present. You try to be there and you try to talk and you try to support them and you try to listen and you try to at least offer them the kind of feeling that it's a safe, secure place where you can be yourself and you can grow into whoever you want to be, right? And if we can't offer that, then probably it's not the right fit and they're better off somewhere else. And we've had some people leave for that reason, for example, that they couldn't deal with the fact that there's no budgets and there's no, nobody telling them what to do next. They want to go somewhere else where they actually have a boss. I, I can't work unless I have a budget type of people. So um, long story short, we don't know yet how feedback is going to be. It's going to be different what it is now than what it is in a year or two years time. As time goes by and as growth comes along, as et cetera, everything changes all the time. It doesn't mean that like, you know, every day is different or anything like that. I'm not trying to make it sound like it's too mercurial or anything like that. But what I mean is that there are different stages in the company and you need to do things in a bit different way as the company matures and as the, as the people mature and people want to, want to achieve different things and want to go a little bit different ways and all of that. But hopefully we can, you know, figure out the right ways to be there for all of our employees and, and, and be present and um, listen to them and figure out the right way so that everybody can flourish as an individual and together as a team, as a company will be, you know, just bigger than the, the sum of the parts. Yeah. That's like awesome to hear that you guys are like evaluating the process constantly and figuring it out and you have a unique system already in place. So 
Well, it's a self kind of repairing, you know, completely autonomous, uh, you know, automated system in that sense that it's, it's biological, right? It's organic. If yeah. something doesn't work, we go somewhere else. And if something does work, we keep doing that as well and replicate it and, and, and all of that. So we adapt, you know, to whatever we want to adapt. And if something is, doesn't feel right, we stop doing it immediately. It's not like, no, but we have this mandate that we have to do this or we have this budget we have to spend. No, we, we can turn on a dime on something. Mm. But it doesn't mean either that, you know, things move too fast and we're too fickle on everything. No, there's a lot of inertia when you have a lot of people. And kind of one of the ways I've been trying to describe, for example, in a couple of uh, lectures I've been giving in different places, uh, that how do we actually work in an environment like this when nobody's a leader, nobody's a product owner, we don't have processes, we don't have super clear roles on, who, on who's doing what, and we don't have no command and control. So what I call uh, how we work is C4. It's an explosive method for that. And the first one is communication. And it's the same thing when, you know, you have your kid's calendar there at the back uh, and, and, and he's at school, et cetera. So you probably need to talk with your wife, for example, or a significant other that, okay, who's going to take him to school or who's going to pick him up from school? You communicate. You also consult each other that, okay, who's going to take, take him to school on, on Thursday? when today is Monday, when we're having this conversation and you collaborate, you turn, take turns on different days. And that's how you have a consensus, how the kid gets taken to school every day. So it's that, that is a process already, right? It is you a, have process, a process, but it's a very generic process, right? We don't say that uh, you need to ask your significant other every morning, this or anything. It's natural. People understand it. The way we kind of think about it is that we, we need to talk to each other. We need to uh, consult with each other. We need to work together and we need to have a common understanding. So that's why we call it communication, consultation, collaboration, and consensus, because that's how we work in the normal world. When you go to the store to buy milk and you don't know where it is, or when you plan your next holiday, or when you take care of your kids, or when you call your relative for something or your friends and plan where you go for beers, nobody calls the shots that no, this is what we're going to do, take it or leave it, go somewhere else, find another company, etc. We need to work through the four C's anyway, sooner or later, in whatever we do, being, you know, human beings in a, in a social society or a social construct like a family within that or a friend, friends group, etc. So we don't see why we should do anything differently when we walk in, in the door to the office, right? We use the same C4. If we kind of impose some other power structures and hierarchies and processes on top of each other, then people need to behave differently, work differently, think differently than what they were before they walked into the office, right? Because they use the C4 outside there in the world. So why wouldn't we use how people actually work and how people actually behave, how our psychology actually works inside the office and allow them to be as efficient as they are as human beings working with each other and by using the same things. And, you know, it doesn't always work, obviously, because who do you need to talk to? How do you know? Who, do you need to talk to everyone about everything all the time? No, 
obviously that would work. Do you need to consult everyone about every single thing all the time? No. Do you need to collaborate on everything that everybody needs to be able to be part of every, every single thing we built? No. Does everybody need to be on the same page all the time and have consensus on everything? Do we need to agree hundred percent? No. So that's the kind of, the hard part about how organic and how high level that process is that you you get better at it over time but initially you make a lot of mistakes oh shit i should have told you that i did that thing and and it actually affects your product or next time guys you should consult us on this we already did this and now you waste a lot of money or you know why didn't we get to collaborate on this i wanted to work on the logo too why didn't you ask me to be part of it or i disagree i think this is completely the wrong thing for the company to do i'm there's no consensus on this so you will learn after those incidents that shit next time i got to talk to that person shit next time i got to consult those those roles or those kinds of people in the company because they can help or they're going to be offended or hurt or disappoint <clears throat> disappointed that uh, they're not part of it or we need to collaborate on this next time because it's more beneficial, it's faster, or, or people are going to be <clears throat> feeling weird that they're not part of it. Or with the consensus, it varies a little bit on what type of consensus you're looking for. Is it If it's, you know, which way the toilet paper is hung on the toilet versus how many Slack channels you should have <laughs> active in the company or, you know, what's the new company logo, et cetera, or, or does this person get hired? There's different levels of consensus or what's the color of this button on this game in this menu that nobody ever goes to, right? There's yeah. different levels of consensus, but that's what we try to now talk about a little bit internally as well. Hey, we do work this way and, and we've, kind of after the fact started to describe our describe ourselves that this is the way we actually do work and this is the way we are we don't have a process we don't have roles we don't have uh, you know power structures and we don't have this and that but this is what we do have you have to talk to others you have to consult others you have to you know ask questions give feedback tell others and if you don't know something you also have the responsibility to ask and not to wait for others to communicate to you so we're trying to put a lot more responsibility on everyone to be active in using the c4 so that they're aware that okay yeah i can do anything but if i do this solo and don't talk to anyone that's not the right way so you, you need to kind of push people a little bit to become more open and, and more collaborative, more consultative, more communicative, more consensus building. Like people kind of are more open kimono in a way that, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Is everybody, uh, is everybody okay with this uh, type of a thing if it's a bigger strategic type of a thing or whatever? Uh, or even, even not even strategic, but our, our game teams open up their games a lot. The, hey, this is where we're thinking of going next with this game. Do you guys have any, any thoughts? How does this feel? And we do the same thing with our community. Our community folks talk with the people a lot about the future roadmap and get the feedback from them, etc. They're used to C4 uh, outside of the company as well with the extended uh, kind of community, uh, the players uh, as well. I mean, it sounds like... Uh, um, at the same time, super simple, and it might sound over simplistic, but the truth is that whatever you else you kind of impose as structures or policies or processes are going to be superficial. This is what happens underneath when somebody needs to make an individual decision. Am I going to talk about this to someone? Am I going to consult someone on this? Am I going to ask somebody to help me? Or am I going to go and help that person? And do I feel like I need to have others on board 
to have a consensus and what level of consensus. This is our internal, you know, method for starting to do things or and move forward with creative and technical and whatever tasks in a company or in our lives. So we're just trying to make that visible rather than impose something else superficially on top of it, right? Does that all make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I it feels like, you know, the way that human beings were built to to work together, like when you when people are still, you know, hunter gatherers, they were, you know, they didn't have, you know, HR systems <laughs> in place. Yeah or Slack or HipChat or anything like that, then yeah. all of those are anyway, you know, just extensions. They're better tools for the same things, right? But we're trying to go back to the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only there's only ways to talk. There's only ways to ask. There's only ways to work together, you know, pull together. Or there's only ways to understand if, if the rest of the tribe is on board or not, right? Yeah. And things will go differently depending on whether, whether or not you do those things. It is a social construct. Um, that is there for us humans, right? So why fight it? Why not try to make it visible and use it to your advantage? Mm. Yeah, totally makes sense. Hey, I want to talk about the the game oh, yeah. development a bit. Like after all this uh, organic stuff, let's go into very organic area of how do you come up with game ideas, and then how do you take the ideas further with like what kind of a group of people? How how are they brought together and How do you validate the game before you sort of like, you know, go full steam? Yeah, well, it, it's been a little different every time. So it's been quite organic. But there are certain things that we always do in the same way. And um, yeah, maybe I'm not going to go through all the kind of pr- previous games, but we're right now in the process of uh, thinking about what we're going to do next. And we might start something already into production this year, or it might be you know early next year when it goes into production. We're quite happy business-wise and company-wise where we are with the current portfolio. So we don't have any rush per se to, to get new stuff out. But uh, you know, even though we don't have budgets and plans and policies, it doesn't mean that we're not hopefully smart people who are thinking about, you know, future is gonna someday be the present. So we think ahead. And and that's what we're thinking about, new stuff already. So the way we're kind of approaching that is that we started talking about uh, new games uh, in this iteration of, of new stuff last fall. And and we did like a two, we always do like a two-way approach. So we do like a top-down approach where we look at the market, we look at the competition, we look at the data, we do market analysis, which genres and mechanics Are, and themes, uh, triangulating all, all of those, um, uh, are doing well at that point when we did the analysis last fall, uh, using you know, like Game Refinery and AppBunny, et cetera, looking at it. What's working well in the market then? And trying to find like different, not, not necessarily pockets, but areas of the market, hopefully even big areas of the market where there's a big addressable market like you know match three games for example it's like 20 or 30 percent of the market in us ios at any given given day that's a big enough market that we don't need to get 100 market share in a, like in a niche category we would need to get everybody who wants to play those type of games to make it a hundred million dollar game so we're trying to look at areas of the market that are big enough and we're trying to look for a couple of things that is it uh like a market that's you know 100% owned by a single game or is it more spread out? So it's more, I wouldn't call it democratic, but it's more of a level playing field that there's there's 
uh, fat, uh, kind of evidence that every year there's new entrants to the market who are actually making a significant revenue. And there are different kind of ways to innovate entering into the market, whether it's on the core game or the meta game or the marketing or the or the theme, etc. And we tried to look for those and identify, you know, three to four of these and then have a discussion with the, uh, the people who are starting to think about new things that we think that these areas, these genres or these mechanics in the market are interesting to us. That if we can find out, you know, uh, how we're going to make a great game there, how we're going to make something that's different, how we're going to make something that can be marketed and can be scaled so it can 10x the company and how we're going to be uh, finding something that we like and how we're going to find something that we actually know we can make a good execution on and, and, a, and a great game. So we're trying to get like a, almost like five things aligned at the same time that, you know, it's something that the market will like. It's something that we will like. It's something that we can do a really good job of um, a good quality game and good marketing for it in the, in the, in the market. And we can do a really good job in terms of technically and creatively and artistically making that game, developing that game. And it feels good when we have a prototype. So it, that's the last bit that we actually have it in our hands and shit, we've got to get this into production. And we've already kind of ticked the boxes on other things before we built the prototype that it makes sense to build a prototype on this, that if we can get the prototype working, we know the other four things, the market wants it, we want it uh, as a product, as a business for us is there. And then if the kind of last creative development spark is there that we feel it in our hands and it's something that everybody likes that, hey, this is cool, we've got to get this done. So on a high level, what that means is that it's something old, something new, something blue. So something that is out there is a big thing, but it needs to have a new twist. So it's at the same time familiar and fresh, and it needs to be ours as well. And we need to feel good about making it ours and, and, and doing it. So this is, this is what we do. And then people start to ideate, people start to concept. Uh, we have this thing every Friday uh, that we provide lunch for everyone and we have future playgrounds. So everybody can do whatever they want after, uh, you know, noon, uh, after lunch uh, that is served at 12. And people prototype a lot. People teach each other something. They watch, you know, presentations from GDC Vault or they uh, learn new technologies or, or try out new things, et cetera. So a lot, of, a lot of prototyping and ideation and concepting and brainstorming happens there too because it's not an individual thing. People kind of like open space as a concept. People say that this is what I'll be doing this Friday. If anybody wants to join, you know, just come in uh, into this room and let's do it together. So we do that. And then, you know, people do a lot of kind of skunk works prototyping on their own. They just have this idea that won't quit. So someday somebody will show that, hey, I did this. I've been thinking about this for six months. Why haven't you said anything? Well, I haven't wanted to say anything, but here it is. What do you think? You know, these creative types who don't want to collaborate. They just come up with things on their own. Uh, that works too, sometimes really well. So, so you got to cater to that. So that's why we never have any overtime or anything. So the people if they want to do some stuff, you know, outside of normal working hours, it's not like working hours are too long for that, right? And no, no crunches or no weekend work ever or anything like that, because that actually lives breathing room for some people to do stuff on their free time, because work time is so short, but you can get your work done and you actually can do some of that free time thing on your, on your work time, even without the Friday thing, right? But then we do these targeted things, what we're doing right now, we have this prototype sprint. So one of the teams and like 80% of the other team 
is now for a whole week, they drop the tools on the games, the both of the live games, literally. There's only one guy in, in, in battle, I think, who was full-time. He wanted to fix some things in, in, in the battle backend stuff. So he's working on that. But he's also making some music for the prototype. So he's not fully fully working on the on the team. But everybody else is prototyping. And it's like a game jam in a way that people have put out these ideas that have been kind of brewing around. And they pitch them to everyone on our Monday general meeting that, hey, we have this idea. Anybody wants to join in the prototyping sprint, you're welcome to join the team. And some people are in many teams and kind of helping out with different things. And But you always have one or two people who are kind of interested in figuring out something about this prototype. And that's happening now, literally as we speak. So we have like five different bigger prototypes being pushed uh, this week. And some of them are already in internal testing, multiplayer stuff that we're, we're playing and are quite fun. But it is organic, so very organic. It needs to feel right. It needs to come from individuals who want to build something. But at the same time, we try to give the right seeds, the right ideas that as a framework, if this thing flies as a prototype and you want to get into production, it needs to kind of fit this kind of criteria, this kind of addressable market, this kind of uh, com competitor landscape, this kind of technical implementation, and this kind of time to market for minimum awesome product, etc. So people understand the kind of the rules of engagement in a way, what we're up against, right? And what they're up against as an opportunity cost for what we would want to see go out to the market as a company. So no strict rules per se, but very kind of clear understanding of where we would like to be in an ideal case with new things going into production, if that makes sense. Do you like uh, give it sort of like a time allocation to get like first retention numbers for the game? How, how, how long should the team work on those? We, we haven't allocated any time. We were last year in soft launch for like, five or six months with a game where the team tried everything that they, they, they could and what they came up with and what we came up with and pushed to them, hey, maybe you should try working on this. But we couldn't get the, the retention and monetization numbers up on Battle Bombers Arena, uh, our Bomberman-esque game that we did last year into soft launch. So the team decided to kill it. But we don't have like strict rules. This is how long you can be because we don't have strict phases or anything. And first and foremost, I mean... We don't really believe in soft launches that much. I mean, we, we believe in a lot of testing and validating and, and we believe data. But what I mean by we don't believe in soft launches is that if you do like limited markets or limited platforms, you, you can never really be sure how well it's going to work at scale or how well it's going to work globally or across platforms or anything like that. So we try to do, you know, try to get to the bottom of it as quickly as possible. And by, by getting to the bottom of it, I mean, we try to go global as early as possible. We try to go both platforms, all countries, and we try to condense the product into minimum awesome products. So for example, Battlelands uh, Royale, when we launched, we didn't have leaderboards, we didn't have invites, we didn't have squads, we didn't have nothing. We had no events, we had no tournaments, we had nothing, no social there. I mean, 75% of the game was missing. And, you know, still we're up to like 60, 70% of where we want the game to be in terms of features and functionality that a game like that actually needs to, to be really successful, uh, or at least to give it to, the opportunity to be successful so that people can do the things together and alone that usually make those games work. 
But we believe that it's better to go out live as early as possible because then you're not in the fallacy of thinking that things will change magically by opening up new platforms or magically by the next update. Uh, there's no fallacy. When you release the update, that's where you are. That's the data. You have as many DAUs as you have, and the KPIs are what they are. And if you can, and the benefit of launching early as well is that you actually start to generate revenue as well. So it's not like you're incurring more and more development costs and not making any money. But you can very early start to see that, okay, with our salaries and our burn, where does the game need to be to be sustainable? How far do we need to get, whether or not it's improvements in monetization or retention or, or you know, engagement? So what's the LTV or do we need to improve its marketing to, to make it a, at, a, at a steady state or what's the virality of it, et cetera? You see the real thing, the real KPIs earlier so you can see in real time, is this profitable for us already or not, et cetera? So we try to get to validating as early as possible but now with the kind of completely new areas where we're entering, we're probably going to do, you know, maybe like a one month uh, production with a couple of different themes and, and try it out in, in selected markets and just to, uh, uh, test the whole funnel for marketability, you know, with mock creatives and seeing the conversion funnel and everything and all that. Because, uh, yeah, it's, it's just the faster you get to real answers, the better it is. But real answers, meaning real answers with actual players rather than any playtesting or anything. Playtesting is great for UX and UI and, and early first-time user flows and stuff like that. It's great for the first 30 minutes, but you can't ask people to test you know, retention and engagement for 30 days or 90 days. That can't be a test that you pay for. It needs to be real. People need to make the decision voluntarily against the competitors' games out there in the store and in the market. So... That's why it's better, uh, we think, to go out with the game, actually, as, as early as possible, and then just develop in live, develop in global, and use the community and, and see how the game is hunting or not when it's out there. Do you guys like uh, think about this um, decision-making there when you're looking at the, the numbers? Are they good enough? Do you, do you look at your own games? Do you figure out what's going on in the market? What's the process there like? Well, we have our own own kind of framework um, where we can see, based on you know, based on the basic KPIs that lead up to lifetime value. Basically, looking at looking at the retention, looking at the engagement, looking at the monetization, both on the application purchase and ad monetization side. And what is the resulting LTV? If these are the numbers, then we have uh, in the same same G sheet we can look at okay, what's the kind of conversion. Uh, conversion on these ads and what's the conversion in the store and, and what's the kind of CPI that we can expect to need to pay for these types of games and what's the resulting this kind of cost per install that we can end up with. Uh, and then we can look at there, what's the organics. So we have basically everything there to kind of simulate and look at it based on the data. And that's why we want to get early data. We can see that are we roughly there to make this a big game, if we can get you know one thing up like monetization, or are we a million miles away in engagement or retention, which are the hardest ones to really get up, etc. And this is never going to work. Or are we you know a million miles away in marketability? Even if we improve the monetization, we can never grow this game. 
uh, ourselves just by financial engineering because the marketability is so poor against the other you know KPIs. So we have that from our own titles and you know looking at competitors' titles. We have these benchmarks where we can kind of see, and we have the equations basically in there which everybody can build, you know, LTV minus CPI and, and looking at how much money you funnel in and what comes under, uh, um, kind of under the, the line. So we have that there and, and we look at those and that's why the team made the decision, for example, when they were looking at it and putting their numbers from update to update into the Excel that we can't get this to work. This can never get to the scale of the other games that we have out there. So the opportunity cost is stupid. We're going to work on something else. So uh, if you give the teams the tools and the understanding and the data, and they can actually plug see their own data being plugged into a, into a benchmark where they can see that it makes no sense, they're going to you know, decide themselves that we're going to work on something else rather. But yeah, so it's, we have our own, um, own kind of system for that. It's just basically a G sheet where everybody can see what makes a game work from a business point of view and how changing different KPIs work. We actually did this thing uh, in the fall of 2017 where we educated the whole company on, on the system dynamic business model of mobile games. That sounds like a mouthful, and it is. It was like 17 different scenarios on what if we get featuring from Apple? What if we launch a new game? What if we improve day seven retention by 10 percentage points? What if our conversion on the store improves by 20%? Or what if we improve IAP monetization by five cents uh, per DAU? We had 17 of these different scenarios, and we did a test for the whole company. A general all hands test where people needed to stack rank all those different scenarios and we taught them the system dynamic the math behind it and we found the kind of conversion and inflection points where it makes the most sense to focus for the company which lo and behold the store conversion because all installs need to go through the store if you don't count apk pure and these kind of pirate sites etc and then what we did is that once people understood the business dynamic, then wait a minute, it's not as important for me to figure out that what should we work on next. If I can actually improve our ad funnel and our conversion in the store, we can make four times the money or 10 times more money. So I'm going to work on icons. I'm going to work on video for the store. And then we built templates for Facebook and uh, App Loving for people to drop their own ad creatives, videos and statics. And, and those got put into our automated user acquisition platform, and that created a competition where we can see live leaderboards, whose creatives are working the best. And, you know, we had some booths as prizes for people who did the best, et cetera. So we taught them how the business works and gave them the tools to actually affect the business and grow it just by drag and drop, you know, ad creatives to, to teach them user acquisition and ad store app. Uh, app store optimization so we had competitions for who has the best icons etc so people were doing experiments all the time and this is not marketing this is everybody in the company everyone it's so a marketing jam <laughs> you know, it's not a marketing jam it's more about the culture of the company is that everybody yeah. understands how the business works and everybody can actually do things for it but the the biggest benefit of that is that everybody understands it and everybody cares for it right so they that affects their own work even when you go back to i'm not doing you uh, app store optimization i'm doing you know uh, a, an illustration for the next update but then you think that how much time does it make to spend on it because you could do something else as well right so people are more cognizant of what makes sense for the company right because they understand how the business works that's awesome. 
let's go into the final questions. I really want to dig into more more stuff that you've learned. And uh, but first, what is your favorite book and why? Oh my god, what is my favorite book and why? I don't really maybe have a favorite book. I mean, I I don't read that much like. Uh, prose literature nowadays i tried to read like three or four books a year usually one at the summertime and and one after christmas when i get something for christmas present but none of those those new new kind of prose books are so great that it would be my favorite book or anything i think i have to say that my favorite book is is the first harry potter because when, when i read that it, it was something like why hasn't this book been written before it's so obvious And I use it a lot as an example uh, when we talk about innovation in, 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 in games is that it's like Harry Potter, flip one bit, magic is normal. When you go to school, magic is normal and it's abnormal not to be able to do magic. It's a simple thing that twists something at the very fundamentals, how the laws of nature work in that you know, kind of fantasy construct, etc. And it's so powerful. Everything else, all the humor and everything, all the action and all the kind of uh uh characters and all the interesting things stem from the fact that we're kind of reflecting that against the real world and there's a one flip bit magic is normal then you uh that that works a lot of other things too you know like uh true blood everybody in, in the southern states is a vampire etc and stuff like that simple flip bits here and there uh and that's a good kind of creative uh test you can sometimes do you know um to try to come up with new ips And it was also, it was just a fun series. Now I've read, read them again with my, my son and he's a big fan. So uh, the book is not that great in, in many ways, but I remember it was like so, such a dumb moment uh, reading, reading the book when it came out that why hasn't this been done before and, and, and all that. I'm pretty sure it probably has, like most things have been done before, but like we know success is not only about the ideas. Ideas are plenty. But, you know, it's the execution, it's timing, timing, timing in most creative industries uh, that makes something so successful. But that was a powerful book when it came out because it, it has given me something in my career as well that it's so simple when you twist the right thing, simple thing to make it at the same time fresh and noble. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I haven't even heard of that before. But yeah. Uh, biggest lesson learned at being a game startup founder? That uh, biggest lesson learned. Should I try to try to be very helpful here, or try to be funny? Think about the aspiring entrepreneur out there. For the aspiring entrepreneurs, I think the biggest lesson learned, and maybe maybe we've been lucky, or or as Electronic Arts' NHL series says, you got to be lucky to be good and good to be lucky, is that it's not as hard as you think that it's not as hard as you think is i mean at least for us it's been pretty smooth sailing and, and pretty easy but it might look easy because you know we have such a good team and i think that that's the biggest lesson that i've learned is that and that's why sometimes when people ask for example that how can you be a ceo when nobody reports to you and you don't even control what people are doing and nobody's telling the people what they're doing But that really is the thing that if you can really kind of deepest in your heart understand that 
that's when the team is the most effective if you have the right team is that nobody needs to tell them anything because they are better than you at anything so surround yourself truly and really with smarter people than you and better people than you and people who are not superstars in a single thing but people who have the resilience and the kind of broader understanding and interest in the broader business or other things so that they can actually rub off the right way with the rest of the team. I think that's the biggest learning that I've had is that it, it's not actually so hard when you have the right people, but it's never about a single person. That's the thing. You need, really need to build a team. And it's, it's not a, like, a, like a trying to be bland in any way that it's all about the team, but it, it is really all about the team. If you, if, you, if you hire the wrong people, you might never be able to make it, no matter how smart people and how good people the rest of them are. Because if the team is not working well together, I mean, people who watch this podcast maybe saw the game yesterday where Finland won the world championship in hockey. It, that was all about the team. It was not about the individuals. And you know how corny it sounds, that's really the thing. I mean, that's why I'm so happy to remove myself from the equation. I'm so happy not to have any control or any power. I'm not, not needing to try to tell people anything, just to ask questions and support and try to listen and try to try to be helpful and try to clear out objects and everything and, and really just let go and hire people who are better and smarter and, and cooler and younger and hipper and, and have longer beards than you and whatever. Because it's not about you. It's about the team. Now that you've let go your team, uh, what keeps you up at night <laughs> if you're not involved? Uh, nothing about the company. It's more family things that might keep me up at night from time to time. But I actually sleep well. I don't sleep like a startup CEO, so wake up screaming. Uh, like a startup CEO scream like, uh, sorry, there's this joke, the startup CEO sleep like, ba uh, like babies, that they wake up screaming every few hours. <laughs> uh, but that's not true. I mean, if you have a great team and you know you can trust them, I mean, why, why would you worry about anything? And I've learned a long time ago not to stress or not to worry myself because I, I, I've learned that, you know, there's very limited that I can actually do about all the things in the world. So uh, it's better to be a warrior than a worrier. So. so what do you see happening to the company the next five years? What's the the mission and the plan? Well, the mission and plan is to keep on rocking it and have fun. And obviously we want to grow in terms of the business and build bigger games with bigger audiences and be more successful because for us, it's, it's always been fun about doing that. It's not like, Oh my God, we need to, otherwise we're going to go under anything. We're financially in a good place. So it's more about the, the meta game of game industry, right? For us to, to be successful. And that's actually a good lesson. Maybe to go back into that is it's super helpful to have people in the team who really relish the game of game development and game business, because then you don't need to tell them that, Hey guys, we need more revenue because they already know, and they're going to tell you before you tell them that, hey, we need to get our revenue, so, et cetera, because they care just as much or more than you about the business and everything. So I, I hope that five years from now, we're not going to be too big in terms of headcount. Maybe we're, we'll be 100 people at most still in one location. So it's actually still like a good, nice camaraderie feeling. But maybe we'll have a couple, a couple of locations. It's actually something that we've been thinking about, that if we really want to replicate what we've been doing, is, is probably do it, not replicate, but do it again, 
do it again from scratch when, when we can afford it, then give them the runway for a couple of years and go somewhere else and find a new group, maybe a couple of people from here and, and start again from scratch and create their own culture, their own ways of working, but give them the same freedom and the, uh, but, and the same mindset as we do. But five years is a long time. We don't, we don't plan that long. I mean, we, we don't even have a, a revenue target for, for next year or anything like that. If we're tripling every year for the next five years, I think we'll be in a good place. So let's try to triple every year, every year for five years, and let's see where that takes us. Thanks, Yami. That was great. Uh, good luck to to Future Play, and see you maybe again in a future episode. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Bye. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest. In the meantime, you can check out our website at EliteGameDevelopers.com and sign up to our weekly newsletter. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, because we have a lot of great content coming your way. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.